Please turn with me to Exodus 14, verses 1 to 31. Exodus 14. Let me remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hairoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficult driving. 
And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their side, on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The story is told of a liberal theology professor who was lecturing as a guest at a conservative Bible college. And he thought that he would try his best to discredit the Bible as liberal theologians are wont to do. And so he pointed out that in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 18, there is a footnote which calls the Red Sea the Reed Sea, the Sea of Reeds. You see, he said, it wasn't really a sea. It was only a shallow swamp a few inches deep. So there was no miracle, really. They just waded across a shallow swamp. To the consternation of the professor, a loud hallelujah was heard at the back of the lecture theater. What is it, he said rather irritatedly. It's a miracle, said the student, that God could drown an entire Egyptian army, their horses and riders, in a swamp only a few inches deep. It's an old story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good one. There have been many attempts to provide scientific explanation for each plague and miracle in the book of Exodus. If you're new, you're coming right at the end of our series on uh, called um, God of Renown uh, in the first few chapters of Exodus. Um, some have said, well, you know, the Nile may have turned to, turning to blood, might not have literally been blood, it could have been toxic algae which then, of course, caused, it looked like blood, and then it caused the frogs to leave the Nile en masse. So there was a plague of frogs. And then they died, and there was such a stink that there were lots of flies, so there was a plague of flies. And so they try and explain all of the plagues, all of the signs and wonders in the book of Exodus scientifically and rationally. I don't actually think it matters. God could have done the wonders miraculously, or he could have used natural processes. For example, in chapter 14 and verse 21, did you notice this morning as Dieter read for us that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. God uses natural forces um, to achieve his will. And so a natural occurrence like an east wind would still be the hand of God, uh, whether or not you accept the rational view. Whichever way he did it, it's, he's clearly the one doing it. And he is the one who saved his people. And that really is the point of chapter 14, and therefore the point of my sermon this morning. The Exodus is the prototype 
for how God saves us. Three points this morning. First of all, God saves from slavery. Finally, after 450 years of living in Egypt, God takes his nation, a a nation, remember, that he had made very big promises to, and he removed them from a land of slavery and misery. It is a passage about redemption, about rescue, about salvation that comes from God. In the first song that we sang this morning, we sang that salvation comes from God. In this chapter, they are saved from Pharaoh in a final way, in spite of some twists and turns. So in verses 1 to 4, freedom is threatened. Um, Look at what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Haroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Lord is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, which will uh, threaten the freedom, the newfound freedom of the Israelites. In verse 5, Pharaoh has seller's regret big time. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. What have we done? We've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. And so he mobilizes his security forces, his army, to set off after them. He changed his mind. He's he's reneged on his promise. How interesting that the real king of Egypt, God, is all about keeping his promise. But Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, changes his mind, reneges on his promise, and goes into pursuit of the Israelites. He changes his mind, verse 5, what have we done? God hardens his heart in verse 8, the hand of the Lord hardened his heart. And in verse 9, the army pursues them. Now let's just think about this for a moment. How intelligent do you think Pharaoh is? Hasn't he just experienced nine or ten, in fact, of the most dramatic evidences that you can't beat God? Here is another act of defiance against the God of Israel who has already demonstrated irrefutably his strength. You've got to wonder about Pharaoh's intelligence at this point. God has just brought the empire to its knees, to the brink of collapse. He's just eliminated, remember we saw last week, the firstborn sons of Egypt. And still, Pharaoh won't stop. How foolish. How foolish it is to take your stand against the living God. In spite of the evidence, in spite of history, in spite of what you know God is capable of, to still be defiant against him in your heart. There is no other word other than stupid. It's not polite for me to say that, but it is a stupid thing to do, isn't it? And so the Egyptians defy God in rebellion against him in spite of the massive evidence of the plagues. They disregard the evidence. They disbelieve God, and they set themselves against him. Strikingly, Israel go into panic. For they also have seen the evidence, haven't they? They've also seen God fighting for them. 
and on their side. And so in verse 10, it's almost unbelievable. Look at what they say. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Oy vey, they say. They've got, if Pharaoh had seller's regret, they've got buyer's regret. Suddenly they panic. It's interesting that in verse 11 they almost say the same thing as the Egyptians said in verse 5. Verse 11 um, what have you done to us? And verse 5, what have we done? I want you to see that in spite of the overwhelming evidence that the nation of Israel had had, Israel's hearts, the Israelite hearts, melt in the face of this first setback. They too, like the Egyptians, disbelieve God. They deny his power. It's very important for us to see this because we need to understand that actually the Israelites are no better than the Egyptians. In their hearts, can you see that they are still slaves? You can take the people out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of them. They are like inmates who have been set free, camping outside the prison, wanting to be readmitted. What a foolishness that is. Do you know the Bible says that we can be in danger of being slaves in our hearts after we've been freed? We have been told of the great wonder of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know about the forgiveness of God for all of our sins. And yet, like slaves, we go back to them and we cling to them. And we think that they will offer us something better than what God has done for us. It's slavery. We have been saved from sin's consequences but we have also been saved from sin's power. The consequences of sin is unforgiveness and eternal death. We know that we've been saved from that through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do we remember that we have also been saved from the power of sin here and now in the present tense? And yet we return to it and we cling to it and we flirt with it, and we tolerate it. We need to examine our hearts today, brothers and sisters. Are we still slaves in our hearts? Are we behaving like slaves when actually we are free? Do you remember these words from Romans chapter 6? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Let's not behave like slaves, going back all the time to our sin. I'm sure like many of you, I'm sure many of you have done what I did years ago, and that was to read Nelson Mandela's autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom. There was a little passage in that book that I've never forgotten because it always troubled me. Um, in the last few years of Mr. Mandela's incarceration in prison, he lived under house arrest in, you might remember, in one of the warden's houses on site in the prison. 
It was a three-bedroomed home that he had free reign of, and it was where his negotiations with the nationalists took place, and he could receive guests there, and there was lots of freedom afforded to him in one sense. Did you know that he loved the house so much that after he was president and after he was free, he built a home in the Eastern Cape that had exactly the same architectural layout as that last home that he occupied in Victor Fustau prison. It seemed strange to me that. I would have thought that he'd want to completely forget about his incarceration. He was free from prison, but he took a little bit of prison with him. Um, although he was free, he all around him when he was in that house, he had a relic of the past, a reminder of the past. But he was in a new environment. And it always seemed to me like, you know, it was a little, was he really free in his heart after that? I don't know what the answer is. But sometimes we are like that. We've been freed, but we take it with us. We want to return to it. Friends, brothers and sisters, sin is a warlord who wants us in his service. He once had us, body and soul. We were miserable in our sin. But because of Jesus, we have died to sin. It's like we've been carried as a corpse out of sin's castle. And outside we have been raised to new life. Why would you want to go back to that castle and to re-enter willingly into that slavery that brought so much misery and darkness and brokenness into your life? We must see ourselves the way God sees us. If you are a Christian today, you are forgiven for everything that you have ever done in the past and scandalously, you are forgiven for everything that you will do in the future. Do you view yourself like that? Let's refuse to go back to the slavery and the addiction of sin, which made us so sick. Martin Luther said this, When the devil knocks and says, Anyone there? I say, No, Martin is dead. Go away. Isn't that good? Second point, God saves the unworthy. The heart of the story of the Exodus is really about the grace of God. It's the story of a group of people who do not deserve to be saved, who nevertheless get saved. It is our story. For that's true of you and it's true of me. The Israelites have spoken to Moses. Why did you leave us in Egypt? You know, we could have died there. But now Moses speaks to them. And I love what he says. Look at verse 13 and 14. I'm sure these are the key verses. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Isn't that priceless? What a description that is of what God has done for us through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the principle of grace. What must I do to be saved, Lord? Just stand still and shut up. I'll do it. That's really what he's saying. Literally, 
Stand still, verse 13. Stand firm and be still, verse 14. Shut your face. There's nothing for you to do. The Lord will fight for you, for salvation belongs to our Lord, to our God. But Lord, you don't know what I've done. It's really bad. Surely there's something I need to do. There's contributions I need to make. Stand still and shut up. See the salvation of God. Leave it to me so that I will be glorified. There is no contribution that you have that I want. There's nothing for them to do to be saved. God will do it all. Trust God. Do you think that after all of the evidence of God's unstoppable power that you can put your entire trust in him to forgive you and to restore you and to save you? Do you need more evidence? What else do you need? I reckon the plagues actually are enough evidence for that, but that's not all there is in the Bible. There is the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so given God's impeccable track record over the last few chapters, is there any chance that he will fail to save them? Is there any chance that he will fail to save you and to bring you where he wants you to be? What should we do to give God a hand in our rescue? Is there a contribution that I should make? Is there some action or possession that I have that will just clinch the deal and make sure that God actually does it? Obviously not. How foolish. Friends, he has just done the plagues without their help. He's about to split the ocean without any, anyone's assistance. He poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ without any action of yours or mine and then raised him again from the dead, suspending the laws of entropy to bring life where there was death, to bring forgiveness where there was sin without your contribution. Do you think he can forgive you? Do you think you can trust him to save you? What makes you a Christian is not any effort that you have done but it is that you have undergone a change of status. It's about being still. Stand still and shut your mouth. Um, it's time for some public humiliation. Where's Andrew? Way. Andrew, why don't you stand up for a minute? You may not know this, but Andrew got engaged last week. Isn't that exciting? Give him a clap. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. You can clap for him and you can send condolences to his fiance. <laughs> um, I was thinking about uh, trying to illustrate this. You know, what happened last week is that Andrew and Caitlin went from boyfriend and girlfriend to fiancés. They became a whole French word last week. Um, their status changed, um, but it's not actually quite the right fit for what, what God has done for us. So actually, Although their status did change, there was something that Andrew had to do in order for his status to change. Beg, plead, grovel, all of those things, you know. It's actually not like boyfriend and girlfriend becoming fiancés. It's more like parents becoming grandparents. That's what it's like. 
uh, when um, we fell pregnant, I use the word we, you know, quite generally there, I phoned my parents to tell them that they were now grandparents. They were shocked. I mean, we're too young for that, you know. Um, what did they do to deserve that? <laughs> Their status changed with, without them having to do anything. They just stood and shut their mouth and became grandparents. It was something that happened to them. It's like that for Christians. God has done it all. You, you have gone from a status of being guilty to a status of being acquitted. There is no condemnation. There is no guilt in life or fear in death. Fear not. Stand still, shut your mouth, and see the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? I know you are not a charismatic congregation because you would have been saying hallelujah and amen after that. Imagine verse 22. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. In the original it says with the water piled up. How do you pile up water? It's quite an extraordinary picture, that. Can you imagine the wonder of walking through? And I don't, you know, we're not told, but I'm sure they all would have walked through with completely different qualities of faith. Some of them would have been terrified. Maybe they didn't want to go through. Maybe they had to be coaxed through because look at that water piled up. How unnatural is that? Am I going to survive this thing? They would have all had different qualities of faith. But they were not saved because of the quality or the quantity of their faith. They were saved because of the object of their faith. Yahweh, the great God who saves. Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, if you are a Christian today, you have crossed over that Red Sea. Sin and death and wrath and the devil have been dealt with. Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. In verse 19, there is some rear guard uh, action to protect Israel from behind as God puts his presence between the Egyptian army and the Israelites. In verse 21, the sea parts, verse 21 and 22. And in verse 23 to 25, the Egyptians get into trouble, forgetting that their chariots weren't four by fours. And in verses 26 to 29, the Lord destroys the army of Pharaoh. And so final point this morning, God saves for his glory. We have seen in Exodus that the Lord will save because of a promise that he has made 400 years earlier. We have also seen that the Lord will save because of his name, when Pharaoh in chapter 5 says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God says, Let me show you. Ten plagues. God says because of his promise. God says because of his name. But in this passage we are told three times that God saves because of his glory. It's not because the Israelites are exceptional. There is no Jewish exceptionalism. Nor because they were particularly lovable or attractive. It is because of one thing the glory of God. Have a look at chapter 14 and verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, 
but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army. Look at verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army. Verse 18. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Why does God save? He saves in order to be glorified. God's glory, he will be glorified. The Israelites are no more deserving than the Egyptians. They know better. But the Lord's salvation is based on the solid foundation that he will be glorified in all the earth. The certainty of salvation is based on the character of God, not on the lovability of those being saved. Isn't that a relief? It's not based on God's feelings about us. It is based on his commitment to his own glory. And so as a result of seeing the salvation of the Lord, Israel responds the way that we should all respond in verse 30 and 31. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Can I ask you this morning, dear friends, will you see the cross? And will you tremble at the Lord's power to overcome your sin? And will you put your full weight on the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't require anything from you? Just stand, shut your mouth, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now will you bow with me as we pray? Just a moment of reflection for you to think about something that you may have heard or perhaps you want to say something to God in the privacy of your own heart this morning. Loving Father, what a wonder it is that you are the God of salvation. How grateful we are to you that our salvation is based not on anything flimsy or changeable, but on your great character and your desire for glory. And with the Israelites, we want to look at your salvation on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we want to fear you and put our trust in you and praise you. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.